Hey, something really cool happened. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 was selected as one of Feedspot.com's top 20 K-12 education podcasts. Thanks so much, Feedspot. Go to blog.feedspot.com slash K-12 underscore education underscore podcast to see the whole list. This is so awesome. Hi, I'm Dr. Greg Goins from the Reimagined Schools podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Hannah Stevens, author and freelance travel writer. Hannah is an advocate for protecting critically endangered wildlife and has written a series of mystery thrillers featuring her heroine, Jeannie. Today, we are focused on her most recent book, Borneo Experience, which deals with deforestation and the exotic pet trade. Lots to learn. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Hannah Stevens, author, is also a freelance travel writer, writing for publications locally and nationwide under her real name, Elaine Mays. After a long career as a software design engineer with several large corporations, Elaine wrote and has published seven novels under the pen name of Hannah Stevens. Those novels are The President's Wife, the sequel Madame Potus, and She Sleeps with Dogs, and Her Murder on Safari, The Iceberg Murders, and Birdhouse Adventure in New Zealand, and Borneo Experience, which we're going to do a little bit of talking about Borneo Experience today. She is also a cancer survivor of nine years. She lives with her two dogs, a Brittany Spaniel named Lily and a Weimaraner, Sophia, in Phoenix, Arizona. You may visit her author website at www.hannahstevensauthor.com. I'll have that in the show notes as well. She also has a very inspiring cancer blog, www.alittlerain.com, and has published The Diary of a Breast Cancer Patient. That also will be linked to in the show notes. You also might want to read a recently published memoir, Battle of the Wills. All of these books and ebooks are available on Amazon.com, and some are available through Barnes & Noble and Nook. Hannah, so glad to have you here today. Thanks for joining me, and say hi to everyone. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Well, this is awesome. I appreciate you being with us. And, uh, you know, before we start talking about your book, Borneo Experience, could you talk with us about uh, what encouraged you to, to pursue writing novels? Uh, when I was working at the Arizona Republic, um, I was writing computer code, not, not, uh, not a journalist. Uh, the uh, George Bush was coming into office and uh, I wanted to write about that. I, I just really felt very strongly about what was happening in our country. And so I decided to write uh, The President's Wife, which is about a story about a, a first lady who is divorcing her husband while she, he's in office running for re-election. And uh, I, because of the uh, way people were thinking in those days, it was received in very different ways. But I had to get this word out. And I actually uh, started my own uh, publishing company, Verde Press. Uh, I incorporated, and in those days, it, it was much more difficult. Uh, I am an independent uh, 
author, and uh, I had to gather all of the uh, resources to do this. So I, I had someone to do the edit and somebody to do the graphic design for the cover, and then I had to find uh, the uh, printer, uh, and they were all in different parts, places in the country, which was, you know, really interesting. And once we put everything together and had everything uh, ready, uh, and uh, two months later, uh, a truck showed up at my house, and I have a very tiny little house with uh, 3,000 books. Wow. <laughs> and I was stashing books everywhere. And of course, now it is so much more simple and it's so much easier. We have Amazon, we have KDP, we have you know, all of these uh, tools available to independent uh, authors. So. Excellent. Excellent. So, and um, one of the things that I want to make sure that I ask you is this, because a lot of my listeners, I guarantee you, many of my listeners have thought about writing a book. And uh, uh, not only have you wrote a, not only you've written a book, but you've written multiple books and uh, you've finished the, these books. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a number of books here. So yeah. How did you follow through and finish your first novel? I mean, how, how did, how did you make yourself get it done it wasn't easy and especially at that time because I was working a full-time job uh, sometimes 50 hours 60 hours a week and so I had very little time but I pressed onward and just because I had this story it was I was just compelled to tell this story and I just kept writing and and uh, uh, you know, I just, I would put aside time uh, every weekend um, early in the morning to do this. And I think it's just a matter of allocating your time and, and having the passion and desire to do it. Awesome. So, you know, one of the things I got to ask, since I'm talking about writing a novel, do you outline or do you kind of start writing and figure it out as you go? Well, most, all of these books that I have written recently, uh, I have not done an outline. I have uh, a storyline. I know what I'm going to be talking about, what, what the story is. I have a protagonist, uh, a, a character, or one or more characters. And, and then I go from there. And it's an evolutionary thing because I sit down and I start writing and stuff happens <laughs> and it is so much fun <laughs> because I come up, because these are mysteries and there are weird things happening to my protagonist who's Ginny Williams is a, a former war correspondent turned wildlife activist and they're all out together they don't want her to tell this story so they're all trying to kill her you know so it really really interesting things happen so it's just it, it is, it's fun. Awesome. That's, that's cool. The, uh, I, I like knowing whether, uh, you know, if it kind of gets, if the outline, even if there's an outline, at what point does the imagination just kind of take control or whatever? So I think that's cool. Uh, you know, it, um, your books are based on your own world travels. Could you talk a little bit about some experience that you had that made you aware of wildlife needs for health and protection? Cause that's where your books uh, are focused. Um, very true. Um, my first uh, really exciting trip was to Africa. After I had been to Italy before that, and this was right after I had cancer, and I decided that I needed to start traveling and realize some of my dreams. 
And uh, when I went to Africa, I went to Botswana, it was such an amazing uh, thing to see all these beautiful animals that were just everywhere. Um, there are more animals in Botswana than there are people. And I mean, we saw, I saw uh, a, uh, a warthog being killed by, by a leopard, or that we saw an elephant that had been taken down by a pride of lions. I mean, we just saw just wonderful, I mean, not wonderful, but exciting things happening. So when I came home, uh, this is when I just, I said, you know, I want to write about this. This is what I want to write about. And Satao, that beautiful bull elephant had recently been killed uh, in uh, Kenya. And I thought, ah, that's what I want to write about, uh, about how these an animals are being poached and killed for their ivory. And I didn't necessarily see any evidence of that while I was in Botswana. But what I'm seeing in, in many of these countries is how the, the habitat is being lost and the forests are being cut down. And, and, uh, and in particular in Borneo experience, uh, this is a direct result of what is happening to these, these beautiful uh, orangutans. You know, and that's something that, uh, you know, in each of your, your books, and we'll get into them in just a little bit, that uh, you kind of focus on a, on a different type of uh, habitat and, uh, and specific uh, um, critically endangered species that uh, need some help to, to keep them uh, uh, part of our, our world. And uh, it's pretty cool that you've had these experiences and traveled and such to, uh, to get this going. One of, one of the things I've heard mentioned uh, it, is from the, the animal rights advocate, Jane Goodall, Goodall. And I was wondering if you'd comment about this. She said, uh, you cannot get through a single day without having an impact on the world around you. What you do makes a difference and you have to decide what kind of a difference you want to make. How do you hope a, to make a difference with your books? Well, this is what my books are all about, is creating an, an awareness. And that's the first thing that has to has to come with people. They need to be aware of what's happening. We live in the United States. We we don't see these animals. We don't see the elephants. We don't see the uh, polar bears up in the Arctic Circle uh, starving. We don't see uh, the whales in in Antarctica being deprived of the krill, uh, the food that they need to eat. You know, we don't see those things. But if I, if I write these books and I, I, this, these come out to an audience that maybe might not even be thinking about it, that is my way of, of letting them know, you know what is happening. And, and from there, they can take action. They can stop using krill oil. They can stop using products with, with uh, palm oil in them, for instance. So there are things that people can do. That's awesome. The, uh, and, I, and I appreciate you uh, um, talking about that because you're, you definitely have a, you know, someone reading about the, uh, the adventures of your, uh, um, even, even though uh, um, your books have a focus and there's all kinds of cool things and uh, exciting things that happen with Jeannie on her, uh, on her adventures, it still has this focus on, and we need to pay attention to, the animal, to, to these animals that are endangered in our world and take care of them. And uh, and help them, which is which is awesome, and th and that's going to lead me into the most recent book that you have, which is called Borneo Experience. And early in this book, um, 
this comment is made. Yes, habitat loss is the big one. The Chinese and some others are coming into the area and they're clearing acres and acres of land for palm oil. The orangutans, like most primates, need a lot of territory to survive. You can't just put them in a small forest and expect them to thrive. Could you use this and share a little bit more about your, your book? Well, we saw, when I was in Borneo, we saw, in fact, a field that had been recently cut. And there were stumps in that field. And uh, uh, these forests, uh, from my research, I do a lot of research after I come home. These forests, some of them are uh, over 100 million years old. I know that's hard to believe, but that, that is true. The orangutans spend all or most of their life in the canopy. The trees are essential to their, to their lives. Um, they live to be about 30 to 40 years. Uh, the mothers stay with uh, the, the uh, young, young for two to three years. Um, they're, they're pretty solitary animals as opposed to some of the other uh, primates uh, that we know of. And, and they, they exist and eat mostly uh, fruits and nuts and some insects and even bird eggs. And, and uh, so when the forest is gone, their home is gone, bottom line. And so in the, in, you know, and this is a big part of your book, the, uh, while, we're, uh, while we're talking about that, so where do they go? You know, like I live in a neighborhood where, in a suburban neighborhood uh, that has, uh, we have deer that follow around <laughs> the streams behind everywhere. Right. And uh, the only reason why we have deer is because their homes are gone and uh, more and more uh, homes have been built. And, uh, and we even had a few wild turkey that were living in the community for a while as well. Um, that, do they end up having to find other places or what ends up happening? Well, fortunately, um, there are people in Borneo that are trying to mitigate this problem. And so there are organizations and, and uh, uh, places where they are rescuing the Sipi Lock uh, uh, Preserve is, is one of those uh, organizations. And that's when I went there, I saw, I saw them uh, come in for feeding and uh, they have every every morning at ten o'clock. They have a feeding of these of young orangutans, and it's it's really too funny. It's like a circus, <laughs> and it so the and then the when I talk about the pet trading uh, problem, which is huge, and this is out of uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, they uh, when they are cutting the forest, they take the babies from the mother and they actually kill, they actually kill many of them. Uh, some of them are poached. Um, they do eat them. Uh, the, some of the natives eat them or they used to, I don't know how much that is, not legal. And uh, so various things happen to them, but they are trying uh, to, you know, help these animals, which, which is a good thing. I, I was, I was heartened to see that. Well, that's good to hear because that's something that, uh, you know, it's as the populations grow and the different trades that are going on throughout the world that are not necessarily uh, encouraged trades that uh, you do get into. Um, 
the, I can only imagine that, you know, at some point something's got to give or something's got to be helped. And, uh, cause it, you know, orangutans seem to get rather large. I, <laughs> I would not think that, uh, they could just be in the, you know, in and around humans for very long without there being some sort of difficulty between the two. Well, uh, that's true. I mean, they aren't the largest of, of the apes, uh, but they are they are fairly large. The male uh, dominant male is is I think they stand about two to three or three to four feet high, and uh, yeah, they are they are significant animals. Absolutely, uh, they're very intelligent. They use tools. They they have not, did I mention this before? They have ninety seven percent of our DNA, and they're so much like us. It's incredible. Awesome. No, you didn't mention that before. Yeah, that's. It's incredible. I I enjoy uh, um, hearing uh, orangutans are fascinating, <laughs> and it's just amazing when you get to see them in, in the wild and such. This is cool. So let, let's take a look a little bit more in your book, Borneo Experience, where uh, here's another comment that's made a little bit later in the book um, by one of the characters. But But what was needed most was a means of eliminating the market for exotic pets. If people didn't buy them, there wouldn't be any demand, and it would quickly remove the need for traffickers. Share what's going on, not just in your book, but in real life with pet trafficking. Well, this is this is a real problem, and it's a cartel. And these people are, and they are out of Southeast Asia, and they are making uh, a lot of money. They sell, they they you know take the babies, and then they transport them out. And it's illegal. It is illegal, but it, they just have not been able to clamp down on them. So they take them to Japan, to uh, the Middle East, and sell them as pets. Uh, some of the babies die, obviously. I mean, being away from their mother, it's a very sad thing. Uh, and to circuses and sometimes to zoos. What can we do about it? I, I think creating the awareness of, and maybe not uh, patronizing the circuses that are using these animals. Uh, other than that, and well, I guess also the use of, of the uh, palm oil, which is taking their habitat away. So if we, you know, if we are uh, uh, cognizant of what it, uh, products you know, we're using and what is in, the, in those products, that will be a help. Gotcha. So uh, very cool. One of the things that, uh, you know, I think that's just a big part of it. It it seems like what you're saying is that we've got to understand what's going on in the world when we, whether it's that we buy exotic pets that we probably know that we shouldn't be buying (laughs) um, or um, the different ingredients that come from the um, deforestation, you know, from those plants that are in their, their habitat, right? You know, one of the things that I'd like to do at this point is that, uh, you know, and it's it's cool, you talked about this earlier, is that your main character, Jeannie, um, of course, we have all these things that are happening in the real world, and then it's a, it's a mystery, and it's a thriller, and because things are going to happen to her. Um, can you share a little bit more of the Borneo experience about your book that would make a listener want to buy a copy now and go finish the story? Well, along with my message, well... I also, I, li- I like to teach. So I do talk about the uh, indigenous people 
and how they have lived for hundreds of years and uh, lived in the longhouse. They lived in com communal areas uh, and and they were hunter-gatherers and lived off the forest. Uh, I talk about a family in this story uh, and a little boy who uh, lives in the forest with his mother and father. Now his father actually is trafficking, helping to traffic the baby animals and uh, uh, Peter, his, his son, is, doesn't really understand maybe, but he has a feeling that this is wrong. And then he is uh, having to go and live in the city and he, he runs away from home. Jeannie comes into the picture because she has been captured and she has escaped and she's in the forest and they meet. And it's the most amazing exchange between Jeannie and this little boy and how she tries to help him to understand where his, what his place is in the world and where, you know, how he can, be, he, he can help to save the animals too. So it, it just, you know, gives me goosebumps when I think about it. Cool. Very cool. So, you know, one of the things that, uh, um, you have these other books and these other adventures that Jeannie's been on. One of them is Murder on Safari, um, Iceberg Murders, and Birdhouse Adventures in, in New Zealand. What, uh, um, can you give a little description about uh, what types of things, what, what are the events that uh, these stories sur uh, surround? What's going on in them? Well, uh, yes, um, Murder on Safari. Uh, I do murder a few people. I don't like to murder people in my <laughs> books, but sometimes I have to. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so I did murder a couple of people in that book. <laughs> um, it it is talks about the poaching of the elephants. Al Shabaab out of Somalia is coming into Kenya into Savo East National Park and killing the these elephants that Jeannie and her uh, um, people come upon uh, a whole herd that has been killed. They rescue uh, one of the elephants, uh, a baby elephant, and they actually take it to a wildlife preserve, uh, the Richard Sheldrick Wildlife Preserve, which I visited the last time I was in Nairobi, and uh, and. Uh, to uh, save this baby elephant. So that that is the story. Uh, that's the main story in that book. Uh, in uh, uh, which one are we talking about? Um, uh, Iceberg Murders next? Iceberg Murders, Iceberg Murders. Antarctica, I call the most beautiful place on earth. And I think it's beautiful because there are very few people there. I'm sorry to say that. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> Mostly animals. <laughs> it's not that I don't like people. <laughs> but, you know, this story there is, is uh, the, the uh, fishing of the, the krill, these factory fish, fishermen coming in and, and, and slurping up uh, hundreds of gallons of the krill, which is the food for all the wildlife there for the whales, for the, uh, the, the seals, uh, penguins. Uh, it's just, it, you know, it's just very, very sad. And she tries to, uh, you know, put a lid on that. And, and she is, of course, going back to report on that. And really bad things happen to her. <laughs> <laughs> but she survives. Yes. <laughs> 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 and then in New Zealand, I love New Zealand. Uh, 
beautiful country, beautiful people. Uh, I, I get into a lot of the history of that uh, island nation and how it came to be. Uh, I talk about the moa, which was uh, the huge uh, wingless bird that became extinct after the Polynesians came across the Pacific to uh, inhabit the, the island. In about 200 years, within about two to 300 years, that, that bird was extinct. Uh, and then, of course, the Europeans came in and they cut down the forest and they brought their sheep and they brought their cattle and, you know, and so the island is, you know, the, a lot of the forest has been cut and it, it's, it's pretty barren in many places. Uh, I did go to see uh, Franz Joseph Glacier and uh, Milford Sound, beautiful areas. I then went across uh, the island to Dunedin to see the yellow-eyed penguins, which there, which is uh, an animal that is becoming very, very extinct. And we saw very few. We saw about three of them from a distance. So you know, it's just. And I didn't kill anybody in this book. <laughs> oh. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's yeah. Awesome. So. It, and that's what I think is neat is that you have in each of these areas, you have, uh, uh, you're focused on something unique about uh, animal uh, life that needs to be focused on, uh, needs help, needs protection. And uh, Well, and then I want to say too about New Zealand is that they are doing a great job in preserving the, the wildlife that is that is left there. The kiwi, uh, uh, these, uh, the kia, and many other flightless birds. Uh, and and you know the 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 stoats. The uh, Europeans brought the stoats in, and uh, which is like a mink-like animal that kills, you know, the the wildlife. The you know the birds, and they can't get away. And so it, it's you know they are they are trying. They are really doing a great job in trying to preserve their wildlife. Excellent. So the, uh, you know, one of the things that I want to make sure that I ask you here is uh, with, with all this focus on your, uh, your storylines bring to light uh, the, the need to protect endangered animals or the environment in those areas. If someone wanted to get involved in helping protect critically endangered wildlife, where do you think they should start and what can ordinary people do? Well, they can uh, join organizations that are doing this. Um, one thing that I am doing is I'm donating uh, the proceeds from, from my books to uh, the World Wildlife Fund, to the African Wildlife Fund. Uh, um, I would like to become more active with some of these groups. Uh, you know, they, 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 there, there are uh, many different avenues uh, and many different organizations that that are, are doing this. So um, that's what, I guess that's what I would recommend. Excellent, excellent. So, you know, one of the things I've, I've heard uh, you discuss is that there's this, uh, there's a popular uh, Netflix docu-series um, about a certain gentleman named Joe Exotic and uh, a big cat zoo owner. Um, I think the show might be called Tiger King or something like that. How would you like this discussion to actually be shaped? You know, until recently, I was not aware of this, but I, I have, it has been pointed out to me that this, this, you know, this 
Gaius is out there. Um, and so I did a little research on on what he is what he is doing. I guess I guess it's kind of a mystery series. Is 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 that correct? I don't know. Uh, it's a little different. I, that's <laughs> yeah. Um, but from what I could gather uh, was that he uh, actually these animals are rescue animals, which you know you have to give him credit for doing that. I mean you know for uh, my take on zoos, I, I have I have mixed feelings about zoos. Uh, of course, number one, uh, how are they being administered? How, how are the animals being taken care of? Do they have enough habitat to lead a nearly normal life? Of course, they never can really lead a normal life because they, you know, they're not able to have the the area to roam and do the things that maybe they would normally do. However, on the other hand, uh, it is a teaching uh, tool, especially for young children, to go and see these animals. They would never be able to go. Uh, many children will never go to Africa or go to any of these places to see the animals. So, so I find that to be a positive uh, thing to, you know. So as, as I say, I, I have mixed feelings about zoos. And, you know, it's... it's uh, it is what it is. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah, I, I know that it's, you know, in, in many cases, uh, especially with the, the newer designs of zoos to make them more habitat-like and to give the, the animals more space, as opposed to being focused on the people being able to see them in cramped corners right yeah. up close. Yeah, it just, it's, uh, the animals, if, if, if the wildlife and wild animals are not able to carry on a normal life like they do in the wild. If they can't, uh, they can't have the area to, to you know, roam. They can't, they can't breed. They can't, you know. I mean, then, then that's a problem. I mean, certainly if they're, they should never be in cages. So you know, I just, uh, it's. it's it, some of the zoos are, are wonderful. I mean, San Diego Zoo is a wonderful zoo, and there are some others, I think, in the country and other, throughout the world that are doing a great job. Yeah, there's there's some really good ones. Uh, with this smaller space, Atlanta's done a, a decent job. And I got to tell you, San Diego, there's nothing like that one. That's amazing. <laughs> and especially, right. especially if you get a chance to go to the, I forget what it's called. They have like a special wildlife park. Safari uh, Park or something like yes, that. Yes, north, yeah. north of the city that you go out yeah. about... 45 miles. That's, that's amazing too. That's, that I felt like I was in a, you know, it's like the next Jurassic park coming out of there or something. Um, well, and it's like, I was in, uh, uh, Canada, um, several years ago and, uh, I saw, um, a, a park where they had beluga whales and they were in this little pond and they were swimming back and forth and back and forth. Well, that's horrible. That's horrific. That should right. never happen. Those animals. I mean that, and and some of these other uh, shows that they do with porpoises and that kind of thing. You know, it's 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 very questionable. And and this is all for this is all for human consumption. This is just for our entertainment. It's wrong. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, that's it's uh, you know, in uh, in the case where you know, like you, you were talking about earlier, trying to become aware of uh, what we have to do to try and protect 
the animals that need need help because in many cases like in our you know i i I live in the state of georgia and one of the problems we've had of you know i mentioned earlier you know a lot of the areas that used to be uh wildlife habitats have become home subdivisions and such (laughs) or uh you know or horse farms or something like that where at one time you had lots of places for uh, the deer to to wander and uh um, and so now you have lots of deer in people's backyards or turkeys and stuff like this. But the most unique ones are the the bears that we have that are native to our state that uh, as of late, <laughs> we've had, um, you know, people leave dog food out, garbage cans that are unsecured and, and the bear come in. And, you know, la- I believe it was last summer, we had a couple of, of the Georgia black bear that uh, decided to go swimming in people's swimming pools. And, uh, and what's what's awesome in all those cases is that they were able to um, remove the animals and take them to areas where away from those communities before yeah. they were hurt um, or before someone was hurt. And, well, the, uh, yeah, the thing that is, uh, you know, for instance, uh, you build a road. Um, maybe that area is a habitat for some animals, okay? So then that divides up their territory and then they either get killed to, while they're crossing it or, you know, something else happens. I mean, it's just, you know, uh, in Africa, for instance, uh, when I we got up into the north part of uh, Botswana, uh, Cassini, near Cassini, uh, the roads there, they had great big huge signs that said elephant crossing, which I thought was just really nice, nice. <laughs> interesting. <Yes. laughs> and so, you know, they are, Botswana is very uh, conscious of their wildlife, of, you know, preserving it, of, of, you know, with the Akabanga Delta there, which is just what was just a beautiful place. I mean, I just so enjoyed that. You know, one of the things as we're getting close to uh, um, drawing the or talk to a close, uh, one of the things that I'd uh, like you to share is where can someone connect with you and and pick up a copy of your books and and uh, can you give us some uh, place for them to reach out to you? Oh, certainly. Um, I uh, the the books, of course, are available on Amazon uh, and Barnes and Noble. Some of them are Barnes and Noble. Um, I, uh, can, I, I can be reached by email, uh, emails at mindspring.com. And I, I welcome anyone, uh, wanting to, um, have a discussion with me or to reach out to me. I, I think that's wonderful. Um, it, it, I, you know, I guess that would be the way. Okay. And I'll make sure that that information's in the show notes, sure. um, your, your email address and such, and uh, encourage them to do that. And, and we'll put links to uh, your books as well. Uh, but, and before, before we get to my last couple of questions, uh, so is, do you have some new adventures for Jeannie? Have anything coming, any other place that she's going? Well, I'm writing about Madagascar right now, which I, I was there a year before last. Nice. Uh, Madagascar is another island nation off the coast, off the east coast of Africa. And I went through Nairobi to get there. Um, again, deforestation is the problem. You know, I, I don't know if people realize that deforestation is actually second uh, to fossil fuels in, in uh, 
causing our, our the warming of our planet because the the forests actually sequester the the uh, CO2 and mitigate the problem. So we really have to be, you know, having uh, having a, a moratorium on cutting down our trees. And um, so that story is is going to be a time capsule story, a time time thing where um, Jeannie goes there in our time and witnesses the animals that uh, are there. The Madagascar is the island of the lemurs. They are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Uh, I was able to go onto this island where they, which was a rescue area for lemurs. And uh, they climb on they climbed on me i had a lemur on each shoulder and one on my head <laughs> nice. and one of the lemurs had a baby tucked under her 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 arm and I, yeah they were just totally amazing animals and there are many different species in the area um and then Jeannie goes back later and the name of the book is in search of the last lemur and the lemurs are all but gone. So, uh, of course, as the title uh, says, you know, she's searching for the last lemur. So I, I haven't really fleshed this out that much, but that's kind of the storyline here. Excellent. Uh, Madagascar was, the people there were absolutely beautiful. Uh, they have nothing. They have no electricity. Uh, they wash their clothing in the rivers. Uh, and you know they're, they're it's 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 uh it's really an amazing place. Um, they're trying to preserve their forests. Actually, they've been cutting the forests down for charcoal to uh, um, make bricks for their homes. You know, for just really uh, ridiculous reasons. And uh, so that's that's the problem there. Now, I was due to go to the Amazon this fall, and, uh, and we were going to go through Machu Picchu, and, uh, and then onto the Amazon River, and uh, uh, explore in the, uh, the rainforest, uh, and, and see, you know, the wildlife there. But the trip has been canceled, of course. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, things are just heating up right now in, in South America, and so it, it's you know probably going to get worse there. Uh, we may postpone it. I still have I have yet to go to Iceland. I really want to go to Iceland and maybe Greenland as well. Uh, and uh, I'm sure I'll think of some other places to go. It sounds like a good that. list going. <laughs> I, I don't want to stop traveling. I mean, I, I'll be traveling until I'm you know, 100 years old, I hope. Who knows? Excellent. <laughs> and, and, and the thing with is, too, you know, being that I am, I am up there in years, uh, I, I work at this. I, I work out every week. I climb mountains. I run five miles on Sunday, you know, and, you know, I just really have to keep keep myself you know very healthy and strong in order to, to do this traveling but uh, that's that's my love 
you know, I was a former flight attendant in another, another life. So. Well, this is awesome. And I appreciate you uh, sharing and talking with us. And uh, I got two last questions before we go, but I, you know, kudos to you with all the, the adventures that you're having and such. And, uh, you know, one of the, the things I wanted to ask you uh, um, before we go, if, um, if since you've kind of talked about the, um, you know, the, the physical shape that you keep yourself in the, to do all this world traveling and sh- such, would you like to share a little bit about uh, um, your uh, memoir, Battle of Wills, or uh, your other uh, website, alittlerain.com? Oh, sure. Uh, Battle of Wills I wrote uh, oh, about four years ago, I guess it was. My brother passed away, and my brother and I had a very uh, contentious uh, relationship. And uh, I grew up in a, a small town in Minnesota, and we were surrounded by animals. We had cats, dogs. My dad brought sheep home one time. We had chickens and ducks and <laughs> you name it. Uh, we lived on the edge of town. We lived in town, but we had a lot of land around our home. We had a big, huge garden, a family uh, that we all worked on together. And, and we had uh, a, a pretty good life in many ways, but in many ways, uh, it was a, a very difficult life for me uh, due to my family, my mother, um, my brother. Uh, I was uh, molested as a child and things like that happened. I've gone through life and had two marriages and two divorces and all my fault. <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, I've, I've had, I have a son, a wonderful son. He is the light of my life lives in the Bay Area, and I lost two babies, and, you know, so it's been an up and down life, and I've reached this, this point in my life where I, I find that I, I am, I'm clear, I'm free, uh, I'm, I'm not running away from anything, and I'm running to something, and uh, this is the very happiest time in my whole life, and I just, you know, I'm just cherishing every moment of it. That's so wonderful. Uh, yeah. And uh, thank you so much for taking a, a minute to share there. We, you know, I, last two questions that I have, uh, and, it, and they go like this. If you were asked to speak at a wildlife symposium concerning the plight of critically endangered animals, what is something that you would want to make sure that the audience remembered when they left your talk? I think, I think the main thing that we all need to know about life on earth is that we're all connected and that all of these animals are a part of us and we are a part of them and once they are gone uh we're going to be in trouble and so i think that that would be the that would be the parting thought and we need to help them we need to preserve them we need to make sure that their habitat is preserved uh, and, and it's all, uh, you know, now it's all on us humans to do that, unfortunately. Awesome message. Last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Well, on the subject of teachers, I think teachers are the second most, most important people 
in our children's lives after parents. Parents are, are of course, number one. Um, they shape our children. They teach them. They, you know, they they are they're the the front line of of, of how our our children are actually you know how they come out in life. Um, I've had many wonderful teachers, uh, but I I have to go back to my early childhood to my Aunt Wilma, I called her Aunt Willie, who was a teacher. And she was instrumental, and, and my mother also encouraged my reading and, and which you know, brought about my writing. But Aunt Willie would used to bring me books every Christmas to read, a new book. And she brought me my first novel, and I'll never forget that. Now, Aunt Wilman, uh, was a teacher in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, actually in a, a, a ghetto area, which I, you know, my my mother told me about this, and I found this to be quite interesting. What what an amazing woman she was, and she traveled the world. Maybe I'm a little bit like her. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, and so I I I have to look to her as as the person who's had a lot of influence on my life. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Hannah, thank you so much for sharing your book, Borneo Experience. You're delivering an important message that all should hear. There are many endangered creatures who need help, and uh, I can't thank you enough for doing the great work that you're doing and keep it up. You know, wishing you the best in the pursuit to make such a difference. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.